From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I once heard a tale that table manners are just a set of social conventions that keep us from attacking one another from across the dinner table. And according to the teller of this tale, eating is inherently aggressive, rooted in millennia of competition for food. Just under the surface of our polite etiquette lurks a ruthless hunger and rivalry. Our forks and knives would make the perfect set of weaponry. Only our etiquette protects us. And this triggered my imagination. I sit down to a normal Thanksgiving dinner with my family. Somewhere between the second and third course, there's a squabble over turkey. A bottle of wine spills across the table, a fork flies past my father's head, missing him by an inch, and my brother, triumphant, stands on top of the table with a turkey leg in his mouth. Now, this would be an unlikely turn of events. In my family, we have a degree of etiquette, so we can safely gather to feast. And I'm not sure I buy the tale that table manners conceal primitive instincts, but the tale makes me think that we do much more than consume food at the dinner table. The table is a place where we gather and exchange, and eating is rarely as much um, of a necessity. It's, it's more of a ritual, especially around this time of year. With Thanksgiving just past and Christmas approaching, we all spend a good part of our time preparing and sharing food. During the holidays, food plays a central and symbolic role in our relationships. And it's not just during the holidays that this symbolism exists, it's in our everyday rituals as well. And our individual rituals, when added together, come to represent our cultural values. In a way, our collective diet is like our art or our literature. What we eat reveals the workings of our societies. And if we think about food in this way, there is symbolic meaning even in a cup of coffee, and symbolic meaning in any given apple or loaf of bread. Western culture, at least, is founded on myths that focus on eating. In the Christian tradition, both the sinful, fallen state and redemption turn on moments of eating. We are booted out of Eden when Eve eats the apple of the tree of knowledge. We remember and embody Christ's redemption of humanity by following the ritual of the Last Supper, eating the bread and drinking the wine that themselves embody divine grace. So today, to honor all the various ways that we are what we eat, literally, figuratively, metaphysically, we bring you three stories from Stanford about the origins and rituals of food. This is a special episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project for KZSU Stanford with three documentaries, and I'm your host, Bonnie Swift. First, two students will take us on an out to dinner in the Stanford dining halls to tell us about what you ate for dinner, and second, a story about the hidden powers of an American junk food. And third, an interview by producer Micah Craddy with Professor Walter Falcon about the political forces that shape our everyday choices in the grocery store. First up, an investigation of one day's dinner in a Stanford dining hall. Jessica Schaefer and Mazietta Mari find out all the things you didn't know, or maybe you didn't want to know, about the modern industry of food. The other day, my friend Maz and I sat down to eat lunch together. We both grabbed the day's special, 
a juicy flame-broiled hamburger. As we started to eat, Maz told me about a new kind of bread he had heard about. So apparently they have carbohydrate-free bread now. They can make bread without carbs. I wonder what's going on with the rest of the burger. Yeah, I know I've heard about tomatoes that are genetically engineered to last longer. Sure, and, and my dad told me the other day not to eat ground beef because I'd get sick. Troubled by our own ignorance about what we had really put into our mouths that day, we decided to investigate how the delicious hamburger we ate was made. How did that tomato get from field to fork? And where did that perfectly sized all beef patty come from? Let's find out. First, the tomato, or rather today's version of an old classic. May 15, 1994, marked an eventful day in the history of the fruit. On that fateful date, the first genetically engineered tomato, aptly dubbed the flavor saver, debuted on the American market. After years of hard work, scientists at Calgene, a small biotech company based out of Davis, California, discovered how to alter the tomato's genetic code in order to slow down the fruit's ripening process. The process of genetic engineering, while it may sound scary and confusing to consumers, is actually relatively easy to grasp at heart. So how does it work? Yes, you like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, I like tomato, potato, potato. Essentially, the goal of genetic engineering is to alter a specific physical trait of a crop by producing, enhancing, or deleting the genetic trigger for that characteristic. In the case of the tomato, Calgene geneticists targeted polygalactaronase, or PG for short, as the enzyme responsible for catalyzing the ripening process. Step two consisted of producing an artificial gene that would silence PG. The end result? A tomato that stayed firmer, longer. What's more, the genetically altered tomato may be even more nutritious than the all-natural one. Consumer expert and UC Davis professor Christine Brune. There are some specific uh, called phytonutrient-specific chemicals that are known to be uh, very active antioxidants, some components known to be very heart healthy, some components known to be protective against cancer, and uh, scientists are working in that arena to increase the level of these components in food. Okay, so far, so good. Food scientists alter a crop's genome, and consumers get a better product. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. The implications of genetic alteration extend far beyond the obvious. First, let's look at the environment. Critics of genetic modification voice two primary fears. The first focuses on plants modified to be resistant to herbicides, chemicals that ward off the spread of weeds. The worry is that genetically engineered crops will crossbreed with untreated wild relatives, and in the process, transfer their acquired herbicide resistance to those plant species. If enough engineered crops crossbreed with closely related wild species, there is the danger that herbicides vital to farmers will be rendered completely useless. 
In an ironic turn of events, the weeds will become immune to the weed killers. The second fear has to do with biodiversity and the worry that tampering with nature will dangerously decrease the diversity of our ecosystem. Thousands of different plant and animal species become extinct each year, and this already devastating trend could be exacerbated by genetic engineering, a process that pushes farmers to harvest only a limited number of profitable crops. Those crops that don't pass the cost-benefit analysis could potentially disappear forever. So how concerned is the public with this issue? We asked a couple of Stanford students for their thoughts. I'm pretty much totally unaware that food is genetically modified. I've heard a little bit about negative effects, but I don't really remember what they were specifically, and it doesn't really concern me. A second slew of concerns lies in the public health sector. Although no studies have conclusively proven that genetically modified foods harm consumer health, many critics of genetic engineering worry that it does increase allergies. Statistics show that 90% of food allergies stem from eight food products, including soy, peanuts, and wheat. The transference of genes from one species to another may alter the degree to which a food triggers an allergic reaction. For example, soybeans are one of the most commonly engineered crops. Professor Christine Brune. The primary use of genetic modification today is in soy. More than, probably more than, well over 80% of the soy produced in the United States has been genetically modified to uh, resist insects or for ease in weed control. The problem is this. Suppose that a gene from a peanut is inserted into a soybean in order to lend the soy herbicide resistance. In this case, a person who is allergic to peanuts but not to soy may suffer an allergic reaction to the soy. So does the public seem to be more concerned about the health risks posed by consuming genetically modified foods? The answer, according to Professor Brune, is a resounding no. The public does need to have additional information and science-based information on in this area. Studies have been done um, every year or so for the last, oh, almost 10 years, and only a third of the people realize there's any products on the market that are genetically modified. So now we know how the tomato we ate the other day was produced, and that the public remains largely uninformed and unconcerned with the potentially dangerous implications of consuming crops that have been genetically altered. But what about the other part of our meal, that tasty flame-broiled burger? I'll let Maz talk all about the mysteries of meat. We all know what beef is. Beef is the delicious warmth and juicy pop of that hot dog at the baseball game. 
Beef is the sizzle of the burger on the grill at the local burger shop. Beef is the group of elderly gentlemen in black suits seated around a dark wooden table exchanging breaths of cigarette smoke at the local steakhouse. Beef, whether it be a hot dog, a hamburger, or a New York strip, is the only food that we can truly call American. Beef, it's what's for dinner. Guaranteed to be in ICU. One more time. What's beef? But what is beef? Where did it come from? And how did it become so important to our society? For that, we take a trip back in history. A couple thousand years ago, at about 6500 BC, a few Stone Age residents of Turkey thought it would be a good idea to make these large animals they saw pull things that were too heavy for them. To make a long story short, for the next 8,000 years, humans gradually figured out that these large animals had milk and they also had meat. In around 1500 AD, two things happened. The first was the founding of the first official breed of cattle, the Shorthorn. Ancestors of shorthorn cattle make up the majority of Angus beef sold in stores today. The second we're more familiar with. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It didn't take long for the cows to follow him. Today's $79 billion industry produces 25 billion pounds of beef. That's 100 million cows enough to give one cow to every three Americans. One hundred million cows. That's three times the population of the state of California. So there's clearly both a supply and a demand for beef. But how does it get from farm to fork? We've all been exposed to the idea of cow farming. There's usually a guy wearing a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, and he's usually got a whip. Think about the name Cowboy. What do you think his job is? We picture him as riding around on his horse in the hot Texas sun yelling things like Bramoose, Hogtie, Hondo. At the end of the day, it is his job to take care of his cows because he depends on them for survival just as much as they depend on him. He'll be out taking care of the cows until, well, till the cows come home. Too bad, there are no cowboys left. In today's corporate industrial world, farming is done far differently. Most cows are born on farms, then sent to feedlots to be fattened up. When they are fat, they are sent to meat plants where they are packaged into styrofoam containers and sent to the grocery store. The cowboy riding around on his horse has been replaced by a modern industrialized system. There may be some advantages to the mass production of beef. More beef is available at less cost to more people. However, the mechanized nature of modern beef production has two inherent problems. What the cows are fed and how the meat is packaged. First, let's look at the problems with the feed. The 
The average cow at a typical feedlot will be fed cornmeal containing some, if not all, of the following. Feathers, meat scraps, fish meal, chicken manure, cattle manure, urea, cement dust, hooves, and cardboard. Why are cows fed these things? Cactus Feeders, one of the largest cattle feeding companies in the world, gives us the following information on their website. Quote, we use the right equipment to mix and deliver feed that pays off in better cattle performance. So it's all about performance? Okay, sure. All of the above items have the necessary starches to make a cow grow fat. So Cactus Feeders is using the right tools for the job. But are they doing the right job? Feeding cement and manure to a human would kill them, and the same holds true for cows. The bovine digestive system is meant for eating one thing and one thing only, grass. Cows are nature's vegetarians. What happens when you feed a cow corn mixed with cement dust and other things to bulk up the corn? Its stomach is slowly destroyed until the animal dies. It turns out that corporations feed their cows growth hormones that fatten them up fast enough so that they can be slaughtered before their stomachs kill them. Do we end up eating these hormones? You bet. There's a birth control pill called Seasonal that's almost exactly like traditional birth control pills. The protection is the same, the hormones are the same, but prescription Seasonal has a difference. It ex like other birth control pills, Seasonal has serious risks including blood clots, stroke, and heart attack. Smoking increases these risks, especially if you're over 35. If you've ever had any of these conditions, certain cancers, or if you could be pregnant, you shouldn't take the pill. Did you know that the hormones in birth control pills are similar to those found in the meat you eat? The hormones that are added to the feed to cause animals to grow leaner and larger in less time are still in the meat when it is on the shelf. One hormone commonly used is called xeranol, a synthesized estrogen. Not surprisingly, a study was done which showed an increase in breast cancer in humans who had consumed meat containing the hormone. Even in the presence of levels of the hormone far below the government limit, the positive correlation to breast cancer still held strong. A mother of a human child would never inject it with hormones for it to become, say, a better athlete later in life, but Inadvertently, the same mother will feed the same child the same hormones. If a greater awareness is raised at the consumer level, then it will no longer be profitable to keep experimenting with our livestock's feed. Where are we? What the hell is going on? The if only the growth hormones were the only problem with the feed. This next problem you may be more familiar with. As of 2003, 143 people and some 160,000 cows have died from so-called mad cow disease. Technically, the human form of the disease is referred to as new variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, or NVCJD for short. NVCJD causes accelerated dementia, permanent brain damage, and, in 100% of the cases, death. Meat that can give you NVCJD comes from cows that were fed dead sheep or dead cows with the same disease. That's right, to save money, some companies decided to feed their diseased livestock to other livestock. What you may not know is that the disease is not caused by a bacteria or a virus, 
but by a mutated protein called a prion. Ordering a steak well done does not come close to destroying the prion. What's worse, it can take up to 40 years for symptoms of the disease to appear. The ban on using dead livestock as feed was placed in 1997. That gives us another 30 years to wait and see what will happen. Now we come to the second major problem with the modern beef industry, the meat plants. Some meat plants process 4,200 cows per day, or nine per minute. In about six and a half seconds, a cow is killed, skinned, cut up, packaged, and labeled. According to the USDA, before the animal is killed, it should first be stunned to the head, giving it a painless death. Okay, but here's what really happens, according to one meat plant worker. Quote, some of the guys take it out on the animals. They hit them on the head. They stick the gun in their eyes. Or they don't even bother stunning them. Inside out, upside down, twisting when a cow is improperly stunned, either by negligence or simply because the process moves too fast, it is fully able to sense the painful events that follow the stunning. First, the cow is, quite literally, skinned alive. While its skin is being ripped off, the cow defecates in a panic, smearing its own feces all over its hide. It's not wrong to feel bad for the cow because of its pain, but that's the least of our problems. It turns out that a significant portion of the meat we eat is contaminated by the feces of a cow. We've all read the warnings. Eating raw or undercooked meat may increase the risk of foodborne illness. This refers primarily to E. coli, a disease which occurs naturally inside the digestive tract of cows and is transferred to the meat by the feces. 73,000 Americans each year are infected with this disease. The USDA, however, claims that the meat is properly inspected for E. coli and other diseases and is as safe as possible to eat. It seems that the average person is comfortable with this assurance. Um, I really don't know that much about how beef is produced. I just assume what I'm going to eat is okay. It's not killing me. I'm just eating it. People may be comfortable with the claim that all cows are thoroughly inspected, yet how is it humanly possible to check every single one of the 4,200 cows that speed through one meat plant in one day? The reality? It's not. It's funny to think that something as common as eating a hamburger could raise so many questions about the foods that we eat on a daily basis. What have Mozzie and I discovered since our recent lunch together? We've discovered that when we sit down to enjoy a meal, most of us have absolutely no idea what exactly it is that we are eating. We now know that when we bite into that tasty all-American hamburger, we are most likely consuming a genetically altered tomato, or a beef patty that is not exactly all-natural. Will this reality change in the near future? The answer is maddeningly uncertain, as most things these days are. Only time will tell.
Some foods can provide much more than physical nourishment. When a food takes on the status of a cultural icon, whole traditions can be built up around it. Catherine Wells and Sherry Chung tell us about the occult properties of one very special American junk food. Every spaceman knows you just gotta have Hostess Twinkies along. Even space girls know it. You get a big delight in every bite. The Twinkie. Minneapolis City Council candidate George Belair was accused of bribery after serving some to a group of senior citizens. Bill Clinton put one in a time capsule. And Dan White got away with murder on the argument that eating too many Twinkies was making him depressed. The Twinkie, the easily accessible, golden and creamy kids' treat, seems at first glance just a bland snack. But it has received much more than its allotted 15 minutes of fame. All this Twinkie trivia has got me wondering, is the Twinkie just a Twinkie? Now for Hostess Fruit Pies, Apple and Cherry and Twinkie. Cream filling, real fruit filling. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies and Twinkie's cakes. Well, Roger Bonatti says it is just a Twinkie. Speaking from his home in Bucksport, Maine, this retired high school teacher just doesn't see any major significance. I, I've treated this whole Twinkie thing rather superficially. I know one should think deeply about Twinkies, but I just can't seem to muster the desire. Interesting, coming from a man who's had a 30-year relationship with Twinkies. Well, one in particular. 32 years ago, Bonatti was teaching a chemistry class and talking about food preservatives when one precocious student asked how long a Twinkie would last. And my response was, why don't we do an experiment? And we just put it up there and, and forgot about it. Uh, it was just a Twinkie up on top of the chalkboard. And then only probably once it was over 20, 25 years that it began to achieve a certain amount of notoriety. Pretty soon, reporters from all over the world, NPR, BBC, CNN, all wanted to talk to Bonatti about this legendary Twinkie. This newfound fame was unexpected. Surprised the heck out of me. I would have never guessed that anybody would care about an old Twinkie. I guess it is a feel-good story for some reason, you know. And I just, I mean, I can't help but laugh. It's just so foolish. Twinkies, Twinkies, candy bars. I wonder how much they are. Okay, a little tiny bit faster now. Foolish, maybe, but I think there must be some reason it's still sitting in a high school office in Blue Hill, Maine, collecting dust. Why won't he just throw it away? I talked with reporter Debbie Snook, who's written on the subject, and she suggests that the mystery of the product is what's so intriguing. You know, people used to make fun of how long a shelf life it might have. I think I hit in here that the, it's derived from the cotton plant. <laughs> And that there's a little plaster of Paris-related material that's in there to help it keep its shape. Do we really want to eat this stuff that, that isn't going to break down, that uh, might not be real? Snook says there's an element of mystery, of myth, in examining cultural products. I think we all like to feel like we're part of uncovering some truth, and so why not for snack food? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Roger Bonatti is not the only person who's experimented with the unnatural properties of Twinkies. In 2000, two Rice University undergrads, bored during finals week, conducted a series of bizarre experiments. Dropping Twinkies off roofs, prodding them, and electrocuting them, they tried to determine their conductivity, their resilience, even their intelligence. While on the surface these experiments were basically a joke, they show us one way to deal with our estrangement from the production of prepackaged items. Well, let's say this Twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the New York area. According to this morning sample, it would be a Twinkie 35 feet long, weighing approximately 600 pounds. That's a big Twinkie. I met with Stanford professor Hilton Obensinger in his cozy office. He talks kind of like his desk looks, with that cluttered organization worthy of someone who's already published six books on American history, literature, and popular culture. He told me these experiments and legends are an integral part of consumer culture. Living in a consumer society, the need for myth continues. It doesn't go away. It does become a form of resistance as well as a form of accommodation in various ways to reality. So all of the urban tales revolve around that. It's true. Didn't we all wonder about the mystery meat every Friday in the middle school cafeteria? What about the rumor that Jell-O is made out of cow hooves? For an additional opinion, I turned to Karl Marx. Marx's theory of commodity fetishism suggests this sort of myth arises because of the capitalist system of production. We become alienated from the social aspects of production, and that leads us to invent stories or conduct research on where and how commodities like Twinkies are created. We tend to associate myths with ancient religions, but their modern incarnation continues today in the form of urban legends. Author Del Deschamps, who is presented at the National Conference on Ethics and Popular Culture, argues that these modern myths are a testament to consumerism as its own postmodern religion. Deschamps studies things like apocalypticism and cosmological naturalism, so I approach his theory cautiously. His book argues that consumerism organizes society much like religion used to. Now, I'm not so sure it's the new religion, but part of that theory makes sense. Think about it. Many of us Americans are very religious. We go to church every week or say a prayer every night. But how much more frequent are our daily commodity purchases? Gum, cigarettes, gas, bottled water? From the heart of America, one man has turned a daily purchase into a lifelong devotion to the Twinkie. He is the Twinkie King, you know. Lewis Browning has eaten one every day for the last 65 years. I uh, used to pick up milk off the farm and haul to the dairy, you know. 
My route was a long route, and so I'd stop at a little old store along my route and buy a Twinker or a cupcake. It was hard to eat the cupcakes with that icing on the top, you know. I had it all over me by the time I got into the dairy. So I just switched and stayed to all Twinkies from then on. For over 50 years, Browning's Twinkie habit was just a personal quirk. But in 1996, Hostess discovered him, and he has not been able to live down his fame since. He was even a guest on the Jay Leno show. It was kind of funny at first, but uh, I've got used to it. Everybody in town here calls me the Twinkie King. I got a big plague up here that Hostess made for me with uh, announcing I was the Twinkie King. I've talked to the president of Hostess about three or four times. He's called me and congratulated me and everything. For Browning, this daily ritual seems to line up with the routines he has in his everyday life. I'm, I'm religious myself. I go to church every Sunday and through the week almost the time. Think about your own daily rituals. Is it a Starbucks mocha? Your favorite pair of Gap jeans? Is it your iPod on the way to class? Myth, ritual, parts of Deshaun's theory were starting to make more sense. The classroom Twinkie seems like it became an almost sacred object. Students still gather around, stare, and ask, can I touch it? And the Twinkie King won't stray from his Twinkie-a-day ritual, even though it doesn't exactly keep the doctor away. A few years back, he asked for special permission to have a Twinkie while he was in the ICU. I wondered how else this so-called religion of consumerism lines up with more traditional religions. So I called up photographer Tom Altony, a member of the American Society of Media Photographers. Last year he chaired a photography exhibition displaying unusual uses of Twinkies. The annual show, held last year in a small college hall, featured creative reinterpretations of famous works of art. One photo, called When the Twinkie is Gone, displayed images of leftover Twinkie goo after the cakes were taken out of their packaging. Some visitors to the exhibit even claimed they could see the Shroud of Turin left in the residue. Tom's own piece, though, called The Last Snack, was the most interesting. What he did was recreate Da Vinci's The Last Supper using hostess snacks as the disciples' heads. Judas, the traitor, was a little Debbie, and Jesus, naturally, a Twinkie. I didn't just take these snack cakes and sit them at a table. I created people all of them, put eyes and mouths and everything on them. Some of them mean to have ears. I put a lot of attention into making sure that the image itself was a clear representation of Da Vinci's. Tom and the other artists took a homogenized, mass-produced item and spun it in their own way, personalized it. But why did Tom choose the Last Supper? I was baptized Catholic and all that, and went to 15 years of Catholic schooling. Tom took the Catholic catechism and infused it with his own capitalist love of the product. If we want to believe a little Deshant, 
consumerism like religion, and a little Marx, commodity as fetish, then it seems reasonable to assume that Tom took two systems of social organization and merged them into his own personal philosophy. At this point, I think it's safe to say that the Twinkie has become a near-worshipped icon of America's secular religion. For science teacher Roger Bonatti, Twinkie King, Lewis Browning, and photographer Tom Altany, their peculiar uses of Twinkies have catapulted them to fame. Bonatti's 32-year-old Twinkie still festers in his successor's high school office, a peculiar relic of mass production and consumption. 90-year-old Lewis Browning still gets a kick out of becoming a consumerist deity, and Altony created his own artistic vision out of the scraps of Catholicism and consumer culture. So maybe there is some validity to Duchamp's theory. The vice president of research and development for Hostess even assumes the title of Twinkie Guru. If consumerism functions in the same ways as religion in our society, does that change the way we think about ourselves? If older societies revolved around the institution of the church, how do these three Twinkie devotees fit into a social order based on consumerism? Stanford professor Hilton Obensinger and I started thinking about the science teacher, the photographer, and the Twinkie King, and began to piece together how Twinkies, or any consumer product, might be used to create a secular value system. I ran my eyes hungrily over the package of Twinkies I'd brought to his office, but there was work to be done. When you live in a commodity society, then there are all kinds of meanings that are associated with things. Very often those meanings can fill in your life for real meaning. Obensinger explained how these consumer meanings become a part of our identity. He believes that people like Bonatti, Browning, and Altony have inverted the pressures to conform that any religion, including consumerism, creates. You know, what's really interesting is people have personal habits or goals. So it could be with anything, but if it's publicized, then it becomes part of their identity. It's in some ways a way to join the uh, consumer process because you can emanate meanings yourself by doing that. It's kind of, if I can make it in my own image, then it's me and mine and not them. Take any product and you can make it a sacred object by keeping it for 30 years. You can invent an entire persona based on an eating ritual. Or you can create new icons for yourself by comparing a Twinkie to religious figures. Several centuries ago, religion as the dominant social structure helped us define ourselves. The church used to give us an easy-to-use value system. Confession for the repentant, prayer for the faithful. Religion was the common ground, but you still had some wiggle room. You could choose to devote yourself to a particular saint, or work hard to rise to the rank of priest or bishop. Marketing is now just as prevalent as religion used to be, and images of Virgin Mary have been replaced in our consciousness by images of Virgin Megastore. And I'm going to drink three cups of Starbucks coffee in the morning long before I'll say the rosary three times. 
If marketing lays the groundwork today like religion used to, what meaning could we possibly get out of a Twinkie? Twinkie guru and spokeswoman, Teresa Cogswell. If they, you know, if they were looking for something to snack on that was a sweet treat, that it would come to their mind as a, as a viable option. A viable option. Now, this doesn't sound like the rhetoric of an all-powerful marketer out to shape the minds of helpless consumers. Marxists believe that our alienation from the social production of commodities leaves us searching for ways to make them meaningful. Often, it seems like the advertising industry fills that gap of meaning. But does it really? If we do choose the Twinkie, what value are we getting? It's not hard to eat. It's fun. It's meant to be fun. We want it to be fun. You know, the different textures have made it fun. Fun, yeah. Fun and fun, freshness, and good taste. If it wasn't fresh, the fun wouldn't matter. If it was fresh but wasn't fun, it probably wouldn't be as, as successful either. I think they, they intertwine each other. Okay. Did you catch that? Marketing is pretty subtle these days. But I, I think she was saying something about fun and and maybe freshness. These are the adopted meanings Hostess wants us to associate with the Twinkie. Twinkie King Lewis Browning and science teacher Roger Bonatti represent two ways we can take these advertised images and shape them in our own ways. Lewis Browning takes the fun aspect of a Twinkie to an extreme, putting far more meaning into a Twinkie than Hostess ever suggested. Roger Bonatti, on the other hand, inverts the whole freshness ploy while making the Twinkie his own. And while he's at it, Bonatti manages to have a little fun with it, too. You know, we actually have a Twink Hinge. We have this little Druid Shrine. And it's amazing that on the summer solstice, the sun just... <laughs> it actually rises right between a Twinkie and a, and a Ring Ding and a Devil Dog. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> we live in a system that gives us endless options of how to create, embody, and express meaning in our lives. Consumerism gives us a lot of choices about how to define our identity. And many of us still use religion in a similar way, which leaves us quite an array of products and meanings to choose from. I can create an identity for myself by eating Twinkies just as easily as by eating blessed wafers. You can create yourself in virtually anything. And in America, individuality reigns supreme. So go ahead. Choose any product and interpret it in your own way. What's your Twinkie? Express yourself. Express yourself. think about the government doing a lot of things. Delivering the mail, repairing the roads, and giving us speeding tickets. But Micah Craddy in the next piece tells us a story about how Uncle Sam can act like Colonel Sanders. Much of what influences our food choices is apparent to the naked eye. 
Every time we go to the grocery store, we see lower prices and flashy packaging. Every time we turn on the TV, we see clever marketing campaigns that attach a status or idea to certain foods. Hamburger Helper brings the family together, and Kool-Aid starts the party. And there's no doubt that what we see influences us. A study, authored by Stanford professor Tim Robinson that was published in August, showed that kids thought the same food tasted better if it was wrapped in McDonald's packaging. But there are also other powerful forces that influence our diet that we don't see, or see very little. The U.S. government, for example. We all know about the FDA and the food pyramid, so we know that the federal government monitors food safety, and that every decade or so it comes up with some way of telling us what it thinks is healthy. But this is not what I'm talking about. These two are visible. The FDA seals on the labels, the food pyramid on cereal boxes. What we don't see is how agricultural policy affects what we eat at the most basic level. One of the largest unseen things that the government does is agricultural subsidies, payments and price guarantees designed to aid farmers that can reach into the billions of dollars each year. Thanks so much for, for letting me interview you. Yeah, appreciate it. Very good. I recently had the opportunity to sit down and talk about the impact of agricultural subsidies with Walter Falcon, a professor emeritus at Stanford University who studies agricultural economics. My name is Walter Falcon. I'm a professor emeritus in, in economics and co-director of the Center for Environmental Science and Policy, but uh, worry about global hunger, biofuel, and other kinds of agricultural issues on a global scale. I asked Professor Falcon to explain just exactly how agricultural subsidies work. Th that's a very straightforward question, and the answer isn't straightforward at all. Uh, for years I taught a whole course on that question. So let me, let me give you the 30-second version uh, of how they work. Uh, there are a number of uh, crops in which price is supported. If market prices go too low, the government uh, steps in and provides subsidies to farmers. More recently, they've tried to decouple the payments from particular commodities and just give it to farmers in the form of an income payment. And sometimes a lot of the supports don't involve subsidies in the form of checks from the government at all, but occur because of trade policy, which keeps certain commodities out of the United States and therefore domestic prices uh, high. And so that's part of, the, part of the story as well. Agricultural subsidies are complicated. They can refer to a lot of different government policies like the ones Professor Falcon just mentioned price supports, direct payments, and favorable trade policies. All the money spent by the government adds up. Well, agricultural subsidies are big business in the United States. It's not only in the United States, in Europe and, and Japan as well. We spend directly on agricultural subsidies anywhere from 5 to $20 billion a year. And how much we spend depends really on whether world prices for certain commodities are high or low. This year with corn prices very high and wheat prices very high, soybean prices very high, there won't be much to, be, to uh, be spent in the way of subsidies. Agricultural subsidies affect what we eat in several ways. They can influence prices, making goods cheaper or more expensive. They can encourage farmers to overproduce certain products, like corn. And they also provide the nation's poor with food stamps. What people also don't understand is that uh, another piece of the food subsidy business is the food stamp program, 
which interestingly is in the Department of Agriculture, not in the Department of Health and Human Services, for long-time political reasons uh, on that. Most of the money for agricultural subsidies comes from what is called the Farm Bill. The most recent version of the Farm Bill was passed by the House over the summer and is still being debated in the Senate. The House version of the bill called for a total of $286 billion over the next five years. According to USA Today, over 66% of this $286 billion would be spent on food stamps and nutritional programs. The farm subsidies, assistance, and the conservation programs only add up to 23%, though that still comes in at over $65 billion. Subsidy programs really drew out of the, some of the issues in the 1920s, and they've been with us ever, ever since. The connection between food stamps and subsidies goes back to the early years of subsidy programs. In part, the thought was that some of the surplus agricultural commodities in the early days would be used to provide consumer food stamps. But I think it's probably much more caught up in the politics because one might have thought that food stamps might be, might be in HHS, but they're in agriculture. And I think partly it's the alliance between urban groups that want the food stamp portion of the bill and the rural groups who want the subsidy, the agricultural subsidy to farmers part of you, that are able to combine in a rather interesting alliance. As well as affecting food stamps, agricultural subsidies affect how much of a certain crop farmers produce. Five crops have traditionally received large subsidies. Cotton, wheat, rice, corn, and soybeans. Crops that are subsidized give farmers an incentive to overproduce. Some physicians groups have criticized the support of these crops because soybeans and corn are often processed into high fructose corn syrup and fatty foods, contributing to our nation's childhood obesity problem. The subsidies can also distort prices for some goods, causing some to decrease and others to rise. Though Professor Falcon does not think the relationship between subsidies and prices is that simple. I'm not sure that the price effects of, of American agricultural subsidies have all that much to do with the, with the price uh, of commodities. I believe the milk program keeps the price of fluid milk higher than it would otherwise be without, uh, without the agricultural program. A, a lot of, of what the agricultural payments do, both the income payments and the countercyclical payments, simply are to compensate farmers for variations in global, uh, global, global prices and whether they, they severely alter the effect of those prices uh, in, in consistent and meaningful ways is, is, not, so, is not so clear uh, to me. This compensation is one of the main reasons that subsidies exist. Nations need a stable food supply and farming is a high-risk endeavor. You are dependent on the sale of your crops for survival. This is a bit like a small business owner. If he doesn't sell, he doesn't eat. But with a farmer, he can't even be sure that he'll have crops to sell. What if there's no rain? What if the crop catches a disease or is infested with locusts? If the crop fails, the farmer is toast. But yet another reason for the existence of farm subsidies is politics. Now it happens in the United States and in a lot of other places that the political re representation from agriculture is, one might say, overrepresented. Does that have to do with Senate representation? Senate representation and, and some of the big agricultural states, just think of Texas and California to name two, are also powerful in all kinds of ways and they have strong agricultural interests. And so the 
politics of agriculture is is pretty clear. Congressmen from rural areas are very uh, much dependent on agriculture. It turns out that commodity committees, uh, most agricultural commodities uh, in this in this country, have commissions or trade associations, and it also turns out that they're very uh, effective as political action committees. And you can just imagine commodity groups targeting certain congressmen. If a congressman from a rural state votes to cut subsidies, this can cost them their seat. Recently, the Democratic Party has faced pressure to support agricultural subsidies in order to maintain the seats in Congress they picked up from traditionally Republican districts in the 2006 election. Agricultural subsidies are not just about what happens in this country, however. They also exist in order to make our nation more competitive with others that can produce certain crops for less money. There is something that we call the producer subsidy equivalent. That is to say, how, how big a government payment would you have to make uh, to make agriculture competitive on an international basis? Uh, it's a kind of a, an aggregate uh, measure. Uh, and and J Japan is probably the least uh, competitive. They have very great subsidies indeed. Then it's Europe. Uh, substantially higher than the U.S., and then it's the U.S. On the international scene, our food policy also has massive consequences for developing nations. In a world with many starving people, overproduction does not seem so bad. The government purchases a great deal of this agricultural surplus and donates it as food aid to developing nations. In the short run, this provides much-needed relief, but it can hurt developing nations in the long run. We generate surpluses that we, on occasion, distribute dump uh, in ways that hurt poor countries. Uh, we give a lot of food aid. America gives half to two-thirds of all the food aid uh, in, in the world. Sometimes that depresses, and, and that food aid is often a product of our, of our surpluses. Sometimes that food aid depresses prices and, and makes other countries dependent upon us. There are some some food, the poor food importing countries that maybe benefit from, from our surpluses and our subsidies. But if you think that a lot of these countries have to get their own agricultural going to be able to grow and develop themselves, then what happens in the United States and, and how, we, how we treat our agriculture and what we do to agricultural markets really gets in the way of their own uh, development, and that, that's a sad fact of life. And here lies the dilemma. Starving people need food now, but if you give them free or incredibly cheap food, then the local farmers won't be able to compete, so they will never develop their own infrastructure. You either hurt the nation in the short run, or you hurt it in the long run. Professor Falcon also told me that our policy has become an easy target for all that is wrong with agriculture in the world. He does not think that this is an entirely valid criticism, but does think that on the whole it does net harm. As if the subsidy issue is not complex enough, global warming and national security are now emerging as part of the debate. The government is subsidizing corn and sugar to process into ethanol. So the ethanol market is, is really booming. If you were to go in the Midwest, it, every time you turned around in farming communities, you would hear, you would hear the word ethanol uh, being spoken about. It's a very big deal because it's affecting agricultural policies and prices in new and different ways. 
and it's, it's raising the price for corn. And, and farmers who have been fighting low prices for years now see a different kind of price formation taking place where, where uh, corn prices, for example, are driving off of the price of a barrel of oil and, and not corn for, for food or feed. Ethanol burns cleaner than oil and could possibly decrease the nation's reliance on the Middle East for energy. It is also causing corn prices to rise, further complicating the nation's food industry. While it remains to be seen what ethanol's impact on the economy and the environment will be, it is clear that what our government does has great implications on what we eat in America and what the world eats abroad. Today's episode was produced by myself, I'm Bonnie Swift, and Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Jessica Schaefer, Mozzi and Tamari, Catherine Wells, Sherry Chung, and Micah Craddy for their documentaries. Original music for the show was performed by David Shosom, Taylor Maid, and John Serna, all of whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes. This episode has also been engineered by Micah Craddy. Also, if you want to know more about the origins of table manners, consult Margaret Visser's book, The Rituals of Dinner. And for their generous financial support, we'd like to thank Stanford Continuing Studies, the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, and the Center for Teaching and Learning, as well as the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would also like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of Stanford Storytelling Project's shows on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week, and we'll hear stories about the words we choose and the way we say them, how language can impact our lives and our world. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Bonnie Swift.